Living in the rising sun, the land of bamboo, Tengu, and Gundam like Yo, can't believe I finally made it, my two re-celebrated Golden Week, hold it down with my show Everybody, welcome back to the Manga Sensei Podcast. I'm your host, John Sensei, and today, like every day, I'm interviewing people and talking to those folks who have a leg up on Japanese to help you improve and really move forward with your Japanese. Today, I'm talking with my friend, Eve Kushner. Kushner, I pronounce, I'm pronouncing it correctly, right? I'm always worried that I'm just going to say a name wrong. My life name's really funny sounding, so I have to check. Who's the um, main lady on joyokanji.com, but we're basically the number one resource for studying the Joyo Kanji and things of that nature. Even when you give a quick introduction of yourself. All right. I am a writer based in Berkeley, California, and I am obsessed with kanji. I've been writing about them for, oh, since 2005, so that's 13 years. I wrote the book. Crazy for Kanji, which came out in 2009. I also wrote a, a blog for three years for JapanesePod101.com called Kanji Curiosity. And then I started Joyo Kanji in 2010. And my goal is in this lifetime, lifelong project is to write one very in-depth essay about each of the 2,136 Joyo Kanji, which are the kanji you need for full literacy uh, in Japan. Right. So I've written almost 300 of those essays, and I sell them from my site in PDF form. Wonderful. Is that enough? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. <laughs> so before we started this podcast, we were chatting a little bit about how I structure the podcast, so I try to give people a heads up before I you know, ask them very penetrating questions and you know, try to dig into the depths of their Japanese knowledge. And one thing you said that kind of... Uh, took me not necessarily took me aback necessarily but it was i found very interesting you said that you you absolutely love kanji but you are uh you're not as in love with japanese could you explain go into that a little bit more for me sure uh, there are many things i could say about that i'll start with my love of kanji please characters i find are endlessly fascinating rich there's an infinite amount to explore inside each character and in the ways that they combine with others and change each other, like alchemy. There are witticisms buried in there, profound bits of wisdom, observations of nature. I, I just can't say enough good things about what's going on in all of that. And for me, it's, above all, a code to decipher. It's a game that um, I'll never win, but <laughs> it always keeps me coming. The challenge is there. I think I also like it because I'm alone interacting with my uh, computer <laughs> or with a piece of paper or with a friend, but it's very safe. I can go at my own pace. I can use as many resources as I like. I think this is probably opposite of your philosophy, which is get out there, take risks, make mistakes. It's okay. Very, very, uh, you know, magic school bus. I'm sorry, what? Very, very magic school bus of me. I know. <laughs> um, whereas by contrast, Japanese, um, has a lot of great things going for it. Wonderful sayings that, again, intersect with kanji, the, the wisdom, the witticisms, the looking at things from perspectives that English speakers don't have. I love all of that. Right. It also frustrates me in certain ways, the three levels of formality. Um, yes. Or having to adjust your vocabulary and your 
syntax accordingly. That just drives me up the wall. Also, because I don't like hierarchy and authority, so having to be deferential is just not my thing. Um, you know, we definitely, we definitely share that. We definitely share that. <laughs> uh, similarly, there are layers of old-fashioned thinking and sexism built in there. That bothers me. Um, mm -hmm. uh, kind of goes hand-in-hand -hand with the hierarchy. Yes, ma'am. Um, some of the syntax... I think is interesting the ways in which people can compress ideas into sentences. But of course I find my own language the most natural fit for my brain. And so I feel frustrated often trying to funnel my thoughts into this other language. And it's sometimes it's a great challenge and another mystery to solve a puzzle to work out how to force my, <laughs> My thoughts into somewhat limited syntax and vocabulary that I have access to and have somebody understand what I'm saying, but it's not nearly as fulfilling as working with kanji to me. Does that answer the question? Yes, ma'am, it does. I think I actually find it quite interesting due to the fact that, like, for example, for me, though I am out there, I go out there and make mistakes. I, it's mostly I feel too, in the reason I tell people after 10,000 mistakes they become fluent, therefore let's make mistakes, is I want to encourage people to feel free to make mistakes. I feel often in language, particularly language teaching, that it's uh, if you, you're almost uh, abashed if you make mistakes. You kind of, kind of get a, you know, you don't want to hurt your grade if you're in university. You want to, you know, do things the correct way the first time, which I completely understand. However, I want to make sure people are okay understanding that they're not going to be perfect when they first start out. Also, but I do like this idea of being able to not necessarily funnel your thoughts, but being able to figure out this puzzle that is kanji. I find that also very, very interesting. So when you see the Japanese language and then you pull out from the from the Japanese language those individual characters, the kanji, particularly the 2136. Um, is it mostly the individual readings and the radicals that you find interesting of how the kanji are put together to have an intrinsic meaning? Or do you simply like putting the kanji together like the yonji jukuko, for example? The question is what do I find most interesting about kanji? Yes, ma'am. Uh, okay. Um, Probably not the things you listed, not the... Well, yes, I do find that it's just a, in the sense dynamically almost. I'm hearing a lot of feedback. Are we okay? You're slightly muffled. Okay, I don't know what's happened to our assistant, but I'm hearing an echo. And... You're okay. You're okay. I can hear you just clearly now. Okay. Um, anyway, I do find it fascinating how frequently the readings can switch so that just... Within a sentence, you might, it's rare, but you might see the same kanji three times and it could potentially have three different readings. And mm -hmm. that just boggles my mind and I think it's <laughs> fun just to, to marvel at. Right. You know? um, but that's not the number one thing I get out of kanji at all. I, uh, on the rare occasion, I love the way the little bits of meaning within a character combine to add up to a larger, interesting meaning. Right. Uh, but it's dangerous to look at a character that way because so often the strokes are in there to convey, some of the strokes are in there to convey sound, not meaning. And yes. new, newbies will often misinterpret that and read everything as contributing meaning. Mm -hmm. So for me, the larger thing is the way two or more characters might combine okay. in fascinating ways. Um, here's an example. It's just one I ran across yesterday. Um, I am writing two essays at the same time, one about targeting, aiming, mm -hmm. and one about theft, and they actually kind of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And so a 
if you combine empty plus nest, the sort of mm-hmm. nest that an insect or bird might build, sure, yeah. with um, house, I think it was, mm-hmm. empty nest house. Um, I feel like I might be wrong on the last one. But anyway, you have um, a perfect target for a robber who sees an empty house that he can <laughs> rob. I just thought that was hilarious to see nest in the middle of of that um, something we would never think of right. anyway but, no there was actually a, I was I'm trying to remember who it, who it is and I'll if I can't remember it right away I'll put it in the show notes there's a there's a famous author I want to say it's I want to say it's Basho where he was so commonly robbed in fact because he was away from his home so often because he would go on these long pilgrimages that he would literally put a he put a sign on his door that's saying robbers enter here and it's and it's supposedly still there it's probably not the same exact sign but to because and he would have little signs over his house like where the money was where the dishes were because he was so he was robbed so frequently and he didn't really have much because he was a simply a wandering writer but people wanted a piece of him so he would you know put things he'd have things in his house people could just easily get to it and he didn't really care anymore at at a certain point. I'll send you a link on it too. I, I can't remember where that. It may have just been from my uh, professor Carter, who actually uh, did. Uh, he's the number one classicist, and he uh, did. He was at. Uh, not, he was at not Berkeley, Stanford. He was at Stanford. He's a good friend of mine, Stephen Carter. Um, but no, I, I think that's actually very, very true. The first thing you mentioned about the individual radicals, the different parts of the kanji, you know, could be used to convey one meaning. And there's also, again, the sound meanings you have to watch out for. Um, plus, then the, the combinations of kanji that I find interesting. I um, commonly refer to a uh, time when I was in Japan. I was at a local, what was that? I, I feel like I was at just some dinner with some friends, and they all had, we had a ruling over a list of names, sales or something along those lines. And um, there was small valley, small valley, small, and a whole bunch of different names of small valley as a last name. And so I, you know, I figured I was fairly decent at kanji. I looked at the name and I was like, ah, Mr. Kotani. And uh, the next one, he's like, ah, no, that's Shodani. And the next guy next to me, oh, no, that's not Shodani, that's Kodani. And come to find out, it wasn't, it wasn't any of those. There was legitimately four different ways to read that name, but it just depended on where you are from in Japan. It just it just blew my mind. I was reading the country it was small valley, but it was they all they put the okurigana, the no, the, okuri, the furigana above it, so you could see it later, and they all pronounced it differently. Right. It's it's wonderfully humbling to know that you're never really going to be sure, never going to be right. You know, it keeps everybody on their toes, I suppose. It it does, and it's, it it also it often I feel almost can be aggravating. When I first started studying kanji, I wanted to, you know I wanted to you know get it. My I had a friend who was living at the same time that I was. He was in Brazil, and he was like you know he had lived there for a year. He felt pretty much fluent. I was in Japan after a year, and I was like I can read at first grade level, and like <laughs> yeah yeah that's the problem. And yet you persevered, so obviously it's possible. So we hear say again, ma'am. Oh, nothing. Please go on. So when you have those, you know, large those large groups of kanji, and you don't know exactly how it's read, how do you, how how do you not necessarily overcome that, but how do you um, let that go? I have a hard time not knowing exactly how to read it. Well, that absolutely depends on the context. Um, I'm okay if when I read, I actually don't think that much about the readings. I'm looking for meanings. I'm looking for which kanji to group. Mm-hmm. Um, to make a meaningful unit 
and how to figure out the syntax of the sentence. And then when I go over it a second time, I pay more attention to the readings. But I, your question absolutely depends on, um, am I sitting at my computer with access to a dictionary? Um, is this an email from a friend? Um, or is this for work? And I'm really lucky because I have, for my work, access to a team of researchers in Japan. Mm-hmm. And so I ask them everything. And that's also interesting to see how infrequently they agree with each other yeah. and how uncertain they are. And one of them is just brilliant and has, you know, 55 years of experience with his own language and access to every kind of dictionary and I don't just mean Japanese, Japanese dictionaries, but he speaks Chinese, and so he can look back at what the characters have represented in ancient China and contemporary China, and even after that, he'll say, I have no idea. So (laughs) that's fascinating. No wonder Westerners are lost. Right. (laughs) Like, (laughs) it makes me feel a little bit better about myself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just, I just an hour ago received a document from him I was trying to choose the art to include in the new essay on theft. And by art, I mean 99% of the time book covers from Amazon.com in Japanese. Mm-hmm. I'll use. So I chose eight book covers, and I go over the, the title and the synopsis provided on Amazon, and I try to understand what is this book about, what does the title mean, and therefore what is the role of our star kanji and the keyword in particular in which mm-hmm. the kanji appears title what's going on here and i i don't spend a lot of time on it because i my work is so intensive that i need to spend my time in other ways and i'm not going to understand the text as well as he is so i take a stab at it to see if it might be a good candidate for inclusion and then i ask him a bunch of questions anyway i asked him about eight book covers and i think four of them he said i have no idea what's going on here this the synopsis is really unclearly written the mm-hmm. title means nothing to me so anyway, is that Mr. Uh, Suzuki? I'm sorry, what? Is that Mr. Suzuki? No. I, I, I quickly ran, ran over to the page to see, you know, I, I knew you had quite a few researchers, so I just picked the first no. guy on the list. The one I work with most often goes by Lutlum. He doesn't like to use his real name. So no, he's I've actually found here. that quite common amongst my Japanese friends. I actually have quite a few of them who often stay away from Facebook and social media, or if they are on there, majority they'll hide their face. Right. Okay. So we started a show and his come rob me and now it's the opposite with I don't even want to put my name out there because I'm concerned about security of course <laughs> of course no I, that's 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 true I was recently reading I just finished a book um, by who was it Matsuyoshi Yoshihito he's a gentleman who worked for Toyota for a long time and he wrote something called Toyota Ryu Jibun no Nobasu Shigoto Jutsu basically but the what we discussed in with one of my uh, professors. Um, I read it on the side and talked to the professor about it. And we probably talked for 45 minutes on discussing what we would translate you as. Do is the f- symbol to flow, um, but it's not talking about workflows. It's not the wor- it can't be replaced with hoho or a method, and it can't be talking about a type. So we were discussing for, again, 45 minutes on how, what we would call this do in this particular context. So you're saying that that Kanji was one that he was treating in a different way in his book. Is that it? He yes. So, he needs something other than what it usually means? Yes, ma'am. 
so I wrote something about this. I can't remember exactly what brought me to it, but I I wrote something about how Toyota has developed its own internal language, defining yes. exactly not just one word, but maybe their twelve words. And I believe that they post them on signs or something. This is our vocabulary. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. So they have they come called something called the uh, lean, the lean start not necessarily the lean startup, but they basically lean manufacturing. And along with that type that type of process for um, managing their company, they they went into more of a trying to uh, identify each of the individual parts of the company and come up with different words to make it almost sound not necessarily more politically correct, but to try to make it um, more of an uplifting environment. Um, try to maximize what they call the wisdom in each of the individual employees, which I thought was quite interesting. So if I'm not mistaken, because it was maybe a year ago I wrote about it, I may have forgotten, but I believe that they then insisted on rendering their newly appropriated words in katakana instead of kanji. Is that right? They rendered many of their words, but not all of the words. For example, Toyota was, instead of simply using the kanji for the name of the company, it's now written in katakana. Um, however, for things like you, as in this case, they simply use the kanji, but they also have quite a few combinations of katakana-sized words um, with a with a jet with a China, uh, kanji ending or kanji or kanji prefix, which has been kind of a pain for translators to interpret these terms correctly. A lot of companies in the states are trying to do this lean uh, thing, and so they'll often typify these kanjis in with it. So you'll have, and that's why they, a lot of them call it lean. They never use the term lean, but that's simply what we translate it to in the States. That's interesting. It also interests me because a friend of mine, Dave Jacobson, just asked me to write a blog for a series on trans literature and translation in different languages, but he's doing mm -hmm. a series on Japanese. So I wrote it, and it'll come out um, in two weeks or so. And what I wrote about was, and I'm not a translator. I have no idea how you do what you do or what your thought process is, but it got me thinking about what do you do when a Japanese person has chosen to render a word in katakana, for instance, when it would normally be in kanji or vice versa, right. and you know they're trying to convey something special with that, and where do you insert that extra special thing into your English text. I, right. I can't imagine. Do you end up footnoting it, or do you just skip over it because it's just too much information for the English reader to take in? Right. No, there was, um, I spoke with um, the gentleman who translated, did the majority of the translations for Endo Shusaku, the gentleman who wrote, like, for example, Silence and the Samurai. And uh, he, when he tr was translating these, he found, he does a lot of overlapping of characters in his different books, but he had one of them who was called Nose. And he could, he was so apprehensive about putting this character's name in the book because he knew in English speaking countries they would call him Nose. And it would throw <laughs> off the meaning they were looking for. And so he didn't want Nose, so he asked, he had to actually go back to the author after he had written the book and be like, can he be this person from another one of his books? And the author gave him approval. So in the English translation, he's actually called something else. Oh, good. I, I do think that would be distracting. So, kind of taking a little bit of a hard turn here, when with your website at joyokanji.com, you I noticed you have you have quite a few things on there. You have different opportunities for people to read the articles. You have as well as different kanji tools. Um, but for my beginning learners, how would you recommend someone starting at a at base one to start 
start learning kanji. To, and this is un, this is with the expectation that they're trying to obtain some sort of fluency to fulfill a, most likely a hobby. Just my bias is because I learned classroom. I would recommend. I'm sorry, can I get feedback there? You okay? All right, is that that's better? Thank you. Um, because I learned in classroom, I would recommend that somebody start by taking a class rather than teach themselves. Let's see. I would recommend taking a course, but as opposed to starting with books. But of course, not everybody has access to classes, um, so. I really loved this textbook that I started with, so I, I can recommend that. You can do the textbook without taking the class. Um, Which textbook was that? I'm looking at my shelf trying to find it. Uh, <laughs> oh, I found it. Um, Basic Kanji Book. Basic Kanji. Oh, thick. yes. Is it the one with the red border? Pink border. It's pink. The edition I have is pink and blue for the tur the first two volumes, I oh, oh it's okay. pink and red. It's pink and red. Um, pink and red. Okay, yeah, I know the one you're speaking of. Yeah. Okay, so the first two volumes are incredible. I just loved every single thing about them. The way that they made kanji manageable and clear. They had big writing. They had um, they just broke down explanations beautifully. It. It, it just felt like somebody was taking you by the hand and leading you at exactly the right pace. And then the intermediate kanji book that follows it is just dreadful and undoes every oh, single no. book I've ever had. <laughs> series, oh, no. so avoid that. <laughs> okay, so I think you, you need to start with the basics. And mm -hmm. then I am biased, but I do believe my book, Crazy for Kanji, provides a good overview, a good map to help you understand how the whole system works. It's not just a matter of, a lot of people approach kanji as, I just need to memorize as many characters as I can, and I'm going to draw them a lot, and I'm going to do mnemonics to memorize the meaning. And to me, right. that's just going about it all wrong. Again, that's my bias. But I think you really have to understand what's, what's the underlying system? Where did this come from? Why... Are they behaving the way that they're behaving, the characters? And why are the Japanese using them to fulfill certain needs? And without that, you're going to be lost. And right. if you ind memorize individual kanji in terms of meaning, but never look at how they behave in a compound, you really haven't got much at all that's like just focusing on the letter T and the letter H separately, never understanding that when you put a T in front of an H, it changes the sound. So right. um, I recommend those. Um, I, again, recommend my essays for intermediate and advanced learners. If you want to understand each kanji in depth, um, my essays are 15 to 20 pages of PDFs on a PDF, but it shows um, everything, sample sentences and a lot of book covers, as I mentioned, so you really get a sense of how these kanji behave out in the real world. And one thing that fascinates me about writing every essay is I start with sort of prim and proper resources like dictionaries and Halpern's wonderful um, dictionary in particular, which shows a few key compounds and how the kanji changes its meaning and has maybe three groups of meanings or something like that. Which dictionary was that again? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm talking about um, the Kodansha Kanji Learner's Dictionary by oh, Jack Oh, yeah, Halpern. yeah, yeah. I actually, it's the big blue one, right? No, it's little and red. Oh, it's little. Oh, <laughs> um, man, I got it up first. Okay. 
<laughs> maybe possibly you're thinking of the new Nelson, which is big and blue. Yeah, maybe I'm thinking of that one. I have I have way too many Japanese books on my walls, but I'm thinking back to my bookshelf. I'm like, which one is this one? Anyway, um, so I go into I do preliminary research on each character, and I go into it. I, I write out everything I can possibly find. I gather all this information about a kanji. Um, I scour dictionaries and the etymology. Um, and I ask my researchers a preliminary set of questions. And so I go into each essay thinking I am fairly well equipped. And then once I start looking at Amazon and at sample sentences, but particularly Amazon, how these characters are being used, I find entirely different facets. And it's almost as if everything I thought I knew before becomes irrelevant. And right. what's really relevant is how are people using these things now? And my researchers are surprised. I recently did the kanji essay on uncle, the uncle kanji, yeah. and found that 98% of the book covers with that kanji on the front, and it, it, by the way, is half of the word for uncle and it's half of the word for aunt. So right. all of these words, these com covers featuring uncle and aunt were porn. And he had no idea that people were using them as a porn term, but they are. So <laughs> <laughs> that turns people on to think about their uncles and their aunts that way, you know. So be you, it. you know, now that we do this, we're gonna you're gonna look on like the the Google Analytics, and there's gonna be like a spike for uncle searching porn after this. Right. <laughs> Another one. This is not sexual, although I think there probably was a sexual connotation. Um, there was a lot of that. Right, there is a lot of that. One of my favorite, well, actually two characters, are um, Deco Boko, the two halves of that. Um, yeah. So things that are outdented and things that are indented. Yeah. And you, and you have undulating scenery and things like that. So um, I was fascinated to see how it was used on Amazon. And say like 80% of the book covers were about getting a flat belly instead of having one that protrudes, um, one that's, maybe indented or something. You just never know what you're going to find. Right. Another one, another right. fascinating usage was um, Tokyo, because it's so hilly, somebody mm -hmm. was comparing it to, I hope I have the right term here, a suribachi, a bowl with a lot of indents and outdents. It's sort of, like, um, sort of like a mortar and pestle, something you might use to grind up food. So they were comparing Tokyo as a whole to a bowl like that. Uh, because of the hills. Interesting. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the, the, soriba, the soribashi. Yeah. Which doesn't include our kanji, that kanji, but somehow my study of that led me to... Interesting. To yeah. yeah, and by the way, speaking of mortars and pestles, that was one of my favorite essays to write. I found out that our molars and our mouths are mortars. Um, that's the, it's the same kanji. Um, it's as if we're grinding up food in a mortar. And I, that's exactly the kind of insight that I love getting from kanji because English speakers never think of it that way. You know, that's, that's, that's exactly the same way I feel about, like, grammar. Like, it, it's very interesting because I, I, I like his kanji as much as the next guy. I have, you know, my favorite kanji or two. And, I, you know, I have those somewhere written on a nice little placard on my house. But the when, when I see things like, for example, in grammar, I was reading something recently about um, the word wakaru and how in English we think of when we uh, I, I get something, I understand something. That's our volition of we we figured something out in our head. But in Japanese, the wakaru verb the means that it happened to them. They didn't they didn't figure it out. It wasn't their volition. It was the volition of wakaru itself. So the fact that it's it's almost it, 
they compare it more to a eureka moment of understanding things as where we figure we just, you know, just figure it out because of our amazing brains, which just blows my mind because from this Western perspective, we're all like, yes, I understand all these things. And the Eastern perspective from this, which we wouldn't understand unless we understood the grammar is this has now been understood by me. Are you saying that they frame it in a passive voice? It's 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 the area of action is not on the per, not on the person but on the object. The area of action. I don't so in in ba- basically when you there are if you look at verbs different verbs so there are at, verbs that you have the volition to make happen and there are ver- and there are verbs that you that simply happen to you from an outside source an undisclosed source. So for example, I read the book. Transitive versus intransitive. Yes. Okay, there we go. Um, it's, it's slightly different in the, the inner working of Japanese because there's an area of around you what counts as your information, which counts for another person's information, and Wakari comes from outside of that area. Right. Okay, now I get what you're saying, and that is interesting. And I'm also interested to see which verbs are transitive versus intransitive in Japanese versus English because there are many things that we don't think you could take action in that way, or they don't think of it that way. Oh, yeah, an easy one would be like, for example, modoru, which means to return something. It means you go back and return for something, right? But that's different than kairu, which means to usually go back home or return in a different way. But then you have the intransitive versus intransitive. So modoru is to return. But modosu, the same exact verb, just returning the ru to a su, which I have a theory how that works, but this is not here nor there, is simply like to put something back on your desk that has fallen over. So you're ret- you're returning it either, but so the question really comes down to: Are you ret- are both these cases returning things to where they originally came from, or are things going back to the way they were? Ah. It, it, it's just I I I love this kind of this is this is what I live for. <laughs> right. But uh, we are starting to run out of time, so I'll ask the the my very last question that I like to ask people. Um. It's it's somewhat of a maybe kind of a low bald question, but if you were to now poof start over, you lost all the knowledge of all the wonderful kanjis out there. If you had to start from square one, this is similar to the question again, but this is for your personal experience. Where what would you do to start over again? You have you don't know anything, so you get to rediscover kanji all over again. So just kanji or Japanese as a whole. You can, so we'll give you the example of so you can maybe speak a decent amount of Japanese, but you don't know how to read or write. Uh, well, I if I could redo my whole life, I, I don't know if that's part of the power you give me, but um, I would give myself an opportunity to live in Japan, which I've never had. And I know that would help me immensely. That would change everything. Uh, but I can't do that. So let's see. Within the confines of what you gave me, um, what would I do differently? I don't know. I... <laughs> <laughs> it's. I always have trouble rethinking my life like that. Um, I'm right. good at rethinking what other people should have done differently, but for myself, I'm sorry. I don't think I have a good answer, except except that you know. Okay, what I was saying about the essay, I go into it thinking I've gathered a great deal of information, and then I get on Amazon and see how people really use it. I suppose that that's true of everything with Japanese. I took all these classes and thought this is real Japanese. And then started forming friendships. I used mylanguageexchange.com to uh, have a lot of language partners, and I still have one. And 
the language, the Japanese they were using didn't seem to correspond at all to the classroom Japanese. And I think I would somehow start earlier with real Japanese, real Japanese people, and mm-hmm. and somehow trust that that's that's the important stuff. Right. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the program. All those links that we talked about today will be put down in the footnotes, everything from um, her book, Crazy about Crazy for Kanji, as well as the um, Japan, Japan Pod 101 blog, the Joyo Kanji website, as well as all the other things we talked about, including the textbooks and the books referenced there, including the book that I just read, the Toyota Ryu, which is quite good as well. Um, if you have any questions for me or for Eve, you can always try to connect with us at our individual websites, mine at manga.com and joyokanji.com for Eve as well. Do you have any other ways that if people would like to reach out to you, how they would do so, Eve? Oh, well, I have many ways. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, email, of course. And uh, I have, uh, well, another site, Anji Kaipono. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I think it's not hard to get.